You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everybody. Hello. Peter Maravellis here. I hope this finds you all safe and well. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the time of the pandemic. We continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving into the summer season. So tonight, we are celebrating the launch of a truly exceptional book. It's titled Seeing Silicon Valley, Life Inside a Fraying America. It is a wonderful collaboration between acclaimed photographer Mary Beth Meehan and the scholar and Silicon Valley culture expert Fred Turner. There have been many books written about Silicon Valley and the rise of the tech industry over the years, but tonight's book has gone above and beyond the fray in placing a human face on a place that has been steeped in myth and hype. To the outside world, the dominant industry memes announce the region as being a place of extraordinary wealth and innovation. But behind the curtain lies another Silicon Valley, one segregated by race, class, and nationality in very complex and very contradictory ways. Through incredible images and powerful text, seeing Silicon Valley, life inside a fraying America, reveals a hidden world that stands counter to the cliches we've become accustomed to over the years. Instead of the ubiquitous entrepreneurs winning fame and wealth, we see portraits of struggle, of families decimated by a voracious real estate market, workers striving for a living wage, and communities harmed by environmental degradation. The book draws a powerful analogy. If Silicon Valley is viewed as being the fate of America, as so many of its apologists proclaim, then this book gives us a scathing and unvarnished look into our future. Mary Beth Meehan and Fred Turner have performed a great service in bringing to light those who have been disappeared and reminding us of who truly built Silicon Valley and the price they paid to do so. So a few words about our authors. Mary Beth Meehan is a photographer known for her large-scale community-based portraiture centered around questions of representation, visibility, and social equity in the United States. She lives in New England, where she has lectured at Brown University, Rhode Island School of Design, and Massachusetts College of Art and Design. Fred Turner is a Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communications at Stanford University Press. He is the author of the books The Democratic Surround and From Counterculture to Cyberculture, both published by University of Chicago Press. He has been studying the effects of technology and culture for many, many decades now, and is, of course, no stranger to City Lights. We have hosted him before and really are very delighted. It is such a great honor to have you both with us here tonight. Mary Beth, Fred, welcome to City Lights Live. Thank you so much, Peter. Hi, everybody. This is a group I would really like to go out drinking with after the reading. There's some really good, fun people in this group. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, and that is the only thing I regret is that we can't pop over to Vesuvio's respects for a, for a drink. So I think a, a rain check is in order on that account for better days. So, so first of all, congratulations on an exceptional achievement. I mean, there is so much that goes into a book like this. I was immediately moved by the poignancy and the power inherent in that kind of juxtaposition between image and text. I mean, it really kind of 
lingers with you. I mean, it's been a couple of days now since I was first able to actually look at the book for the first time. And, and I'm still really feeling such a variety of emotion. Can you begin tonight by talking a little bit about what's the genesis of this project like? I mean, what brought the two of you together in the first place? Sure. I, I think I'll, I'll just jump in on that one. You know, a, a few years back, I had been here for almost 20 years and I'd gotten very frustrated with the mythology of Silicon Valley and the, the way in which, you know, we told stories about how creative folks like Steve, Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg were selling incredible new technologies that were transforming the world. Meantime, I was living in Mountain View, a couple miles from Google's headquarters, and I was seeing a very different world, a world that was very diverse on the one hand, but also radically unequal. And I realized that you know, we needed to actually see the city that was being built here, the region that was being built here. I had a small grant and a friend of mine introduced me to the work of Mary Beth Meehan. And it just seemed like a natural fit. You know, you know Mary Beth's work um, is a kind of civic portraiture that I very much admire. It's in the tradition of Double Take and the, the Farm Security Administration documentarists of the 1930s. And I think, and you know, I, I'll say this because you know, it'd be weird if Mary Beth talked about her own work, but she achieves a kind of civic intimacy in her portraiture. She, she brings you very close to the lives of people and yet sees them in light of the structures they inhabit. And that's, that's what I wanted to do. So we were very lucky. I was with a little funding from Stanford. We were able to bring Mary Beth out as a visiting artist and to, to shoot the book and to, to collaborate from there. And we've worked really closely together over, I guess, several years now to produce the project. And I, I'm really happy with how it's come. But the, the key thing I want to get across is this idea that Silicon Valley is selling itself hard and it's selling myths about itself and about its impact. It is projecting itself as a city on a hill for our time. If that's true, then I think we need to see the people who are actually here. And I think that's what Mary Beth does. And I, I feel really lucky to be able to work with her. Mary Beth? Well, thank you, Fred. You know, I was just minding my own business and I got this phone call. Did I want to talk to a professor named Fred Turner about doing a project in Silicon Valley, which, you know, at that point was like the surface of the moon or something. I mean, what did I know about Silicon Valley and what could I possibly offer? But Fred and I had a few phone calls and I went out there for a little exploratory visit. And I was, you know, I was looking back through my notebooks I came in July of 2017, stayed in an Airbnb in Mountain View near Fred's house and made one of the first portraits, which was of the owner of the house. Her name was Erfan and her family was from Iran. And, and I said, you know, I'm here. I didn't even, I hadn't even seen her. I'd just been Airbnb messaging her and said, you know, I'm here. I thought, okay, I'm going to get my feet wet. I'm here on this project. Would you mind talking to me? And right off the bat, she was willing to make a portrait. She met me at the door wearing her beautiful emerald necklace. And she said, this place is really hard. This place is not what people think. We came all the way from Iran. My family in Iran think that we've made it big and I don't wanna disillusion them or be ungrateful, but this is a hard place. And so right off the bat, people wanted to share their stories and were willing to be photographed. And so I would do that kind of, so that was July. I went back in October for a six week intensive internship with no husband, no kids, no friends, just morning, except for Fred, <laughs> morning, <laughs> noon and night. No friends, please. <laughs> just morning, noon and night. Everyone I met, every coffee, every burrito would be someone that I would talk to, but then also doing research and talking to the people of Silicon Valley Rising and Lenny Siegel in Mountain View, who's doing all this work with the environment and on and on. People, all of the activists on the ground who are working really hard as you know, Peter, to make life better for folks there, they always were willing to talk and introduce me to someone. So it was just that kind of organic process. 
Could you talk a little bit about like, what was it like coming to the text, deciding on what text to use? And then I'm sure there were a lot of photographs. I mean, would you send things to each other? What was that kind of dialogue like? Well, when I got done with that really intensive six weeks, I mean, everybody I met, everybody I photographed, I spent a long time interviewing, usually first, you know, someone would introduce me to someone and we'd meet in a cafe or a sushi place or something. And we'd talk for hours and hours and I would record all these interviews. And then I'd sort of figure out who is this person and how do they fit in the whole picture? Then we'd figure out, okay, how should, what's the best way to make the portrait? So someone like Cristobal, who's living in this shed, you know, we had talked for hours and hours and I knew I wanted to photograph him. Someone from Silicon Valley Rising had introduced me to him and he gives me his address and I meet at the house and we don't go in the house. We go around the back to this shed that he's living in. And so then I come home with this portrait and listen to the interviews and transcribe all that and then wrote those very short passages, sometimes out of hours of tape. When we got done with the whole thing, he worked on the essay as a parallel track. Let me also just say that we edited each other's writing uh, <laughs> kind of intensively. It was really good. I mean, it, it was it was very valuable. I think Mary Beth's goal, is, Mary Beth, correct me if I'm wrong, was to, to bring the voice of the people who she'd photographed onto the page with them. And I, I really wanted to hear that as well. I think one of the things that's happened in Silicon Valley is that the voices of the people who are in charge here can be heard very loudly. They have really, really big megaphones. Right. And we wanted to offer at least a small megaphone to the people who we saw around us. The essay part for me, which is something I'd always wanted to do, was a framing essay. And, and the essay begins by taking seriously the notion that Silicon Valley is offered up as a promised land. And if this is a promised land, what's the promise? Well, the promise is the fantasy of a world of, you know, constant interconnection and kind of happy disembodiment, sunshine 24-7. But the deal with Silicon Valley is that a lot of what's here is sort of under the ground, unseen. You know, my realtor told me when I bought a house here that my job, the first thing I had to do was go look at the Superfund site map, which is a map of pollution sites in Silicon Valley, so that I didn't buy a house near one. Well, that's a pretty interesting kind of thing to be told. And, you know, there's a long history here of layers and layers of, of kind of erasure, uh, first of native peoples, later of farmers. And we wanted to kind of make that both visible and audible, I think, in the text. And, and so my job with the essay was to kind of frame up the images and to say, you know, here's the world we're inhabiting. One, one last thought, you know, I'm a historian. And I fell in love very early with the American Puritans. And I, I know some of you on the call will be rolling your eyes now, <laughs> either folks who know me and know how in love with the Puritans I am or folks who marvel at the disturbing thought of being in love with the Puritans. But, you know, I, I've often asked myself if I were in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620 or in other places in 1619, what would I have wanted to record? What would I have wanted to put in my bag and take into the future? And one of my hopes for this project is that we have recorded the valley as it actually is for folks who have my line of work 100 years out from now and who may want to know what it was like to be here. And so, so I think having the voices of the people in the photographs in the book is critical for that. You know, Peter, the back and forth about the voices was deliberate and we wanted it to be authentic to the people that we met and we wanted it to feel like it feels there. We wanted people who live there to, to say, yes, this book feels right. This book feels like what we're living. But we also didn't want to editorialize. Can I tell them about Cristobal? Tell them anything you want, yeah. So we did edit each other's writing, you know, with a little bit of danger. And so what Cristobal said was what the former president said about all those countries. You remember what he said about all those countries? It's not television, we can say the word. 
Cristobal said, Silicon Valley's a shithole. And I thought, oh my God, Silicon Valley's a what? I thought, you know, coming from Providence, I thought I was going to see this gleaming, glorious place. And so I had it in the text and Fred made me take it out because Cristobal was one of the first portraits. And he said, we can't start here because people are going to write us off immediately. It's too editorializing. We have to be more measured than that and let the people speak in a more, in, in a way that's more paced. So yes, it was a back and forth. I think that's right. And I think I, I think also with that particular comment, I, mean, I think one of the challenges in the, that we try to meet in this book is giving a balanced view of the Valley. It's been interesting. When we first started on this project, editorial directors at, at magazines were kind of interested, but they wanted either stories of heroic tech innovators at Burning Man dancing in the dust, or they wanted stories of, you know, the, the very poor who inhabit every place, but especially here. They didn't want to see the middle. One of the things that I'm proud of in the book is that we reveal the middle. And I think we work very hard to have the full range of folks there. And that's something that Mary Beth really made happen. And they weren't that interested. They weren't interested. We had one editor say, you didn't, this isn't Silicon Valley. So oh, interesting to hear about that denial kind of. So Mary Beth, you, you're from New England. What was it that surprised you about the Valley as you worked there? Because we're really talking about very different environments. And I'm also very curious, like, how does this project relate to your earlier work in Georgia and in Massachusetts? Well, you know, it was just so surprising to go there where the sky is so blue and the bay is so beautiful. And there's this idea, I mean, this idea of California, but you know, a lot has changed since we started this in 2017, the fires, a lot of that has sort of worn off. It was really surprising to see how much struggle and how much suffering there was there on the ground and how when you interact on a day-to-day -day level, I mean, I could go on and on. It, it just it felt like a place where everyone was in their cars and you don't really know anybody. And when you do start to talk to people, there's just so much suffering and hardship. And what I realized is you don't know if the person waiting on you giving you your coffee is homeless. You don't know if the person in Target who's you know selling you something is homeless. There was this feeling of unease, like it's kind of, I feel crazy when I say this, but it almost feels dangerous. It feels dangerous the way being in the developing world, there's that kind of underlying suffering that could just break at any moment. I don't know, does, do I sound crazy? It felt like that. It felt like that. And then when you start to think about, oh my God, the money, the money here that's bubbling up at the top, the money that's available were it to be distributed to everyone else could solve so many problems. It's disassociative to be there. Mary Beth, can you say a word about where you come from in, in terms of your family and your mom and what that meant when you got out here? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I come from working class immigrant people. I, I grew up in a shoe factory town in Massachusetts. And, you know, the cliches of the American dream are that immigrants come here, they enter an industry, they work hard, they amass equity, they do well, they save and they provide for their children. And then the next generation does better. And that's what happened for me. You know, I went to a very fancy private college and I have this middle-class life now. And I was raised completely by working class people. And when I met people in Silicon Valley, the workers, the equivalent workers of my parents and my grandparents, these are the people who are homeless. These are the people who are driving two and three hours. And so the way I grew up in my hometown of Brockton, Mass, with my father, you know, clubs and civic organizations, and there are real people really knowing one another and being part of groups and going dancing and all of that stuff that sounds so quaint now. People don't have time for that. 
I mean, Richard from Tesla says, oh, we just want a cooler beer and a paid vacation. Like we're not trying to break these companies. But so that level of quality of life that working class people could establish in an earlier generation before the 1980s, before Ronald Reagan and before Milton Friedman is not happening in Silicon Valley. So if it's not happening in Silicon Valley where there's all those billions at the top, what does that mean for the rest of the country? It just seems clear as a bell. I'll just follow up and, and I, I want to tie what you just said, Mary Beth, also to, to some of your earlier work in Noonan, Georgia. So for folks who don't know, Mary Beth has a very long project in Noonan, Georgia, which is a town that's been marked by racial division for a long time. And in that town, and this is one of the things I found most exciting about her work, she's made portraits of people. And then those portraits have been blown up into billboard sized banners, which have been hung around town and led to a conversation about the membership of the town and the structure of the town. And, you know, when we think about Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley is a place where we build technologies that individuate people at scale. You know, they give you access to individual experiences. They're personalized, they target you. We're building online a society of individuals. And one of the things that your photographs have revealed, Mary Beth, is that in this new economy, we're building a potentially fairly lonely atomized place where we're not as accountable to one another as we might wanna be. And in your earlier work in Noonan, you did a lot of work to kind of repair previous ruptures you know, generational ruptures across race lines, across economic lines. And I know one of my hopes for this book is that at least we will have made visible the kinds of social fractures and the kinds of lines and the kinds of people who are actually here. And uh, maybe, you know, give us a glimpse of, of how we might begin to work across some of those lines that are dividing us, not only in Silicon Valley, but in America as a whole. I think we would love to see some photographs so Fred, I'm going to give you the dynamite and I will share my screen. It'll be just like being in class with me. Sorry, team. So you had to start on the one that involved me getting a burrito. But this was after a long day of working. You know, I was going back to my I had a little Airbnb in Menlo Park and I stopped and I saw this. There was a food truck and there was music. I think it was in Palo Alto. And I got in line and I, I ordered food. And this whole project was this balancing act. All my projects are balancing acts between doing the research and meeting people through other people whose concerns are aligned with the people they're introducing me to. And then there's the serendipity and the joy of seeing someone on the street or meeting someone who just grabs me for some reason and saying, what's your name? I'm doing this project. Can I have your phone number? And, you know, and on and on. In this case, I looked in the window and there was this woman with this unbelievable face and just her whole bearing just was so compelling to me. And so I realized that she only spoke Spanish and I only speak a little Spanish. Her name is Teresa, but I asked her if I could make a portrait. And she asked the owner and the owner said, okay, so the next thing I'm climbing into the food truck and we made the portrait right then and there and only made a few frames. This is one of the few ones where I really made it just on love at first sight and then took her number and name and went back to Teresa's house in, in Redwood City and got to know her. And she became the cover of the book. She's from Mexico and you know she hadn't seen her family in 20 years. So Richard, I love. so. I had been introduced to a labor organizer who was doing work with the workers at Tesla. The AFL-CIO had staked out a place in Fremont and they were trying to help the workers at Tesla organize. And so I got invited to some meetings 
And Richard walked in and again, his was another love at first sight. And he just looks so, he was just so amazing. And I had to wait through the whole meeting and say, oh, please let him say yes when I ask him if I could photograph him. So I introduced myself to him at the end and he said, okay. And I met him at his house and, you know, he'd been making a hundred and something thousand dollars a year at GM 10 years ago. The plant closes, Tesla takes it over. And now he's making 40,000 after decades in the auto industry. And he can't, he can't even make a living. And when he tries to organize, he ends up getting fired. I talked to him just in the last couple of weeks and his having been let go from Tesla has been on appeal and appeal and appeal and appeal, but still he's not working. He's detailing cars in Fremont. Oh, but before we made this portrait, we talked for hours and hours and hours and, and again, recorded all those and then came back another day and made this picture. So what do you think, Mary Beth? What would you like to see next? Peter, what do you think? You want to talk about Mark? Yeah, that'd be great. Oh, Mark. So to Fred's point about the pollution in the valley, Lenny Siegel is an amazing public servant in Mountain View. And he introduced me to a lawyer named Amanda Dawes in San Jose, who was working with women who had worked in the early technology industry in the 70s and 80s and 90s, whose children had suffered birth defects because they had been working with lead in these companies. And so Mark's mother, Yvette, was driving on the freeway and heard an ad from a law firm. Do you have a child with birth defects? Was your child born between such and such a date? Did you work in the early electronics industry? And she said yes to all those things and got in touch. And so I met them and I met Mark and, you know, Mark needs constant care. He's not able to be self-sufficient at all. And we had, they planned this sweet day. They took me to Chuck E. Cheese because <laughs> Mark loves Chuck E. Cheese. And so we went to Chuck E. Cheese and we had a great time. We went back to their house and he wanted to show me his karaoke machine. And so the karaoke machine had all these lights. And so we made this portrait. Yeah. Can I, can I jump in here too, Mary Beth, and say a little bit about why I love this photograph? Yeah, I love this photograph because it, it, it encapsulates a lot of what we're trying to do in the book. You know, those those lights to me are, are a little bit like the sort of dream of, of cyberspace, the hope that we can have a kind of special electronic world that circulates sort of over our heads. But he reminds me standing here with his body that building that fantasy electronic world is the work of actual living human beings who will suffer while we make that. But not only will suffer, but to whom we owe the sharing of the wealth that we create through the work that we do. And I get very frustrated because I, I think one of the things that Silicon Valley moguls do, especially effectively, is retail the fantasy that we are somehow beyond the laws of economics and beyond the need to give back to our communities, that what we really need to do is make technologies that transform the world and the rest of the rest of the world will take care of itself. And that's just not true. The other thing that Mark's life, I think, reveals is that the history of Silicon Valley and the manufacturing that's gone on here is still with us. This is one of the most polluted environments in America. It is, in fact, has the highest density of Superfund sites in America, which is, I think, kind of amazing. And, and there are people who have been, been harmed along the way. The other thing I wanted to say, I just wanted to go back to here and, and to these two folks. I wanted to say that the inequality in this region is just staggering. There are 74 billionaires, with a B, billionaires here in Silicon Valley and yet 30% of the children in this region have free or reduced cost lunch. 14% of the pregnant women do not have enough nutritionally adequate food to nourish their unborn child, according to the Silicon Valley Index. You know, these are the kinds of statistics that you would expect to see in a much less prosperous environment. And I'm hoping that by seeing these people and their lives, we can see the kind of economic transformations that kick a guy from 130,000 a year down to 40, 
or that, that leave a child you know, disabled for life. And also see that we owe the wealth that we create to the people who help create it. Right on. We're still waiting on a few questions. Also, uh, please purchase a book. That's another reason we're here. Tim Bone said, how do you just end up getting invited to a union meeting? <laughs> well, this part's not interesting. So I have a friend in Providence whose sister does all this labor organizing in Berkeley. And she does these sessions with workers in which she tries to educate them about their rights and she tries to get them to organize. So she had partnered with AFL-CIO. And so I'm constantly like making all these contacts with people, you know, people who work with workers, people who are working in the environment. And then they're sort of referring me to people that they know who might be interested in being photographed. In that case, she got me into those union meetings. You know, she had to clear it with the AFL-CIO and all of that. So it was just following those threads, my nose, my nose every morning, follow my nose, who am I calling, who's getting me to where, what day is it, you know, that kind of thing. If you've worked as a journalist too, you'll know that people tend to show you sort of their spokespeople. And one of the things that I, I admire about Mary Beth's method is that she finds her way around that toward people who, who are much more representative and much more just part of the community that, that she's trying to study. I see a couple of questions on how people have reacted to the images. So let's take those up if we can. Pablo asks if you've shared pictures, portraits, and or essays with the folks that you have photographed, and if so, what were their reactions? That's a good question. Yes, of course, I show, I've shown them because I wouldn't dare publish a book without showing them their photos. <laughs> Teresa has hers in a frame. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I think they, I, I, don't, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I don't say, do you like it? I, I, I don't know. That's a, I have to think about that question. It'll be interesting to see what they think of the book as a whole. I think that will be an interesting thing to follow up. This is Diane. She doesn't like her picture. She thinks the dog looks good, but she doesn't like herself. <laughs> I don't know. That's an interesting question. I think we've, we've talked a little about this. And I, I think that, you know, for the most part, people have felt like we saw them well and that we, we captured the world they lived in honestly and with affection. And I think that's really important, not only with the images, but with the text. And I think that's really important. The Silicon Valley billionaires are, are a different situation. It's interesting. We have not shown this to any of the tech leaders or the tech moguls, although I'm hoping they'll see it. I will, in fact, make sure that at least a couple of them see it, but I don't want to go into that here. So that will happen. In terms of folks who are in that stratum more generally, I think that folks who have seen it, who are in that world, in some ways already know that Silicon Valley is like that. And I think it's, you know, with exceptions, I think it's easy to say to yourself, well, yeah, I, I've made mine. And I am, in fact, changing the world. And, you know, yeah, I see those folks. OK, and move on. I did a lot of work on the counterculture back in the 60s. And I wasn't working in the 60s. It was of the 60s counterculture. And folks then would often engage with different communities, more impoverished communities or more ethnically diverse communities because they were mostly white, the folks I was writing about. And you would offer a critique like, hey, wait a minute, isn't this kind of segregated? And they say, well, yeah, but, you know, we're making it better. There's a way that I think is Silicon Valley sort of absorbs criticism, takes it in, and it makes them in a weird way feel better about themselves, which I think is sort of a, a hard thing to see. So that's something, something that I have seen, and it's a little bit odd. And I, I'm not sure what that's about. You know, I just don't know what that's about. Here's Justina, who I met at a party of these tech, you know, they were scientists. They were sort of high level young engineers. And she was this woman in this red dress commanding this room full of men. And when we did the, and so I just was intrigued by her and got her number and we met and 
she told me this whole story about her dream was to use AI, self-driving technology, to send robots into disaster areas to save people's lives. To, you know, so this real humanitarian approach, she couldn't get that funded. She said, this is capitalism in Silicon Valley. Nobody's going to give me the money. It will cost millions of dollars to get that thing up and running. It's certainly not profitable. And she let go of it. And she works in the, in the automobile industry, developing self-driving cars now. So here was this thing that really was about making life better for people. And it was impossible to do because it wasn't profitable. Yeah, and this is one of the loops that you see in Silicon Valley ideology. I spent a lot of time around Google. And I know when I started hanging out there, people would say, you know, we're Google, don't be evil. This is about 2006. But then they would say, well, what's good? Oh, well, providing information to people is good. And who provides information? Well, Google does. Oh, what's good for Google is good for the world and, and vice versa. And that's sort of a loop that goes on here. I see a couple other questions. Well, I see one is, do we have any plans for banners? We'd love to see big banners in Silicon Valley. At one point, Fred, Fred, can we really tell all on this call? At one point, Fred had this fantasy oh. Facebook was going to pay for it. And my good friend, Matt Zapruder, who's here, said, you can't let Facebook launder, what did he say? You can't let Facebook launder their reputation through your goodwill or something like that. He used the word laundering. And we were like, you're right, we can't because they are part of, you know, obviously they're such a driver of the problem. So I don't know. I don't know about banners. There's no real center of Silicon Valley. I hope that there will be banners at some point. I would really like to see that. I'm working on getting an exhibition at Stanford. And I think that we're at a moment where people are beginning to understand that technology is more than uh, computers and cables and ser server farms. It's people. And the people who are making that technology need to see those people in the same way that in Noonan, Georgia, the citizens of that town were finally able to see their black fellow citizens in a new light. I think we need to have that kind of moment here. And I wouldn't be surprised. There are some, some civic organizations in Silicon Valley who I think could be drawn into doing that. Yeah, so I, I, I have high hopes for that. The book is what we have for now. Yeah. Addy has um, asked what was one of the most difficult conversations. And, you know, they were all difficult, but the most difficult moment was being led to that shed. That was the first time I realized, oh my God, people who are working full-time are living without running water and without basic sanitation. He was born in California and served in the army. It just was sickening. I still can feel it in my stomach, what that felt like. And I think California, the weather's good. You can live in a shed. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, that was the worst moment. Two things I see here. Catherine, thank you very much. Uh, I would love to be in touch with the Museum of Art and History in Santa Cruz and to show the banners in Santa Cruz. I think Santa Cruz has exactly the kind of civic tradition that we would love to embrace with banners. I wanna answer Whitney's question there if we can. So she says, I'm wondering if you can comment on the race and gender dynamics that you observe in Silicon Valley. So much has been written about race and gender in tech, but as you know, Silicon Valley isn't just the tech sector. Yeah, very much agree with that. I wanna hit a couple of things and then maybe ask Mary Beth also to weigh in. The first thing is that race dynamics here cut in ways that wouldn't necessarily apply in other parts of the country. If you talk to leaders of tech firms, they'll tell you we have racially diverse workforces. And they're right. They have many workers from China, many workers from India, and some workers of color born here in the United States. It's complicated. The markers here, I think, are only partly racialized in the way that they might be in other parts of the country. Clearly, class and race intersect here very powerfully. So more than 50% of uh, Latino families, Mexican-American families in Silicon Valley require some kind of civic or federal assistance to make ends meet. And that's you know, substantially less true for white folks. So it's very powerful here. Gender is really complicated. And I've encountered it in lots of different ways. You know, I think there's a kind of universalizing impulse 
behind a lot of the tech world that says everyone at the end of the day is a kind of an information system. And if we just get the signaling right, people can all relate to one another and we can leave race and gender and the body behind. And, you know, folks will know that that's a deep fantasy in California generally, and especially in the 1990s tech world. And, you know, it's just not true. And we see women being pushed very hard away from, from tech worlds in a lot of different settings. So I, I think it's really tough. I think we have some of the dynamics that characterize American racial and gender dynamics generally. And we have a specific set that have to do partly with the internationalization and class dynamics of this particular region. Mary Beth, did you want to jump in on that one? Yeah, I mean, I think speaking, I mean, as two of the whitest people you can imagine doing this work, Fred and I had to navigate Very this whole of time and make sure, you know, that we were doing our best. I noticed race and culture playing out in two ways. One is, as Fred's saying, that it feels, you know, the engineers that are coming from all over the world to work at these places make it feel like it's diverse because you've got engineers from India and Iran all over the place. But the immigrants on the ground and particularly like the East Palo Alto, the African-American community in East Palo Alto is really interesting because it feels like, like John, it was so clear to me just well because he taught me that you know, if you're a young black student in East Palo Alto, your chances of getting into the upper echelons of those companies, which are right there, are really slim, whether it's that the educational path isn't there. And he says, I was rising through the ranks of an engineering life here in Silicon Valley, and there was no one who looked like me. So he went back to East Palo Alto, became kind of a community activist to get kids opportunities to be in maker spaces. But you know, he says Amazon came to East Palo Alto with a mandate to hire a certain percentage of local people. And then they struck some deal with the East Palo Alto City Council to strike that from their charter. And what they did instead was set up a little employment office. But John said, they've been here how many years? The only people I know who ever worked there were the janitors. So access for kids of color in those towns is really tricky and really hard. So we've uh, got a few more questions. We could probably take a couple more. I, I love John's question because I think it's, it's at the, the deep heart of the beast. Can the aspirations of democracy be harmonized with the logic of post-industrial capitalism? And boy, John, this is what Mary Beth and I have talked about nonstop for at least three years. You know, it's tricky. I think the world we inhabit right now, the people who are making our technological systems are promising that those systems will bring us a democracy that otherwise isn't working. You know, we, we look at our government, we see the tensions in Congress, we see the paralysis in Washington, and we see a government that, you know, for a variety of reasons is, is really struggling. And I think one of the promises that Silicon Valley has offered us is that in this new world of technologically enabled interaction, highly individuated conversation, collaboration in cyberspace, we will achieve a kind of unity with the benevolent governance of engineers that we have been unable to achieve through the self-interested governance of political leaders. And... I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. I think that one of the things that happens when you start to think that way is that you lose track of the fact that you need to negotiate with people who are different than yourself about the sharing of resources. You need to enforce the redistribution of resources across diverse communities. You need to recognize the contribution of lots of different kinds of people. And tech doesn't do that. You know, being ranked as influential online is not the same thing as talking with your neighbor who may be from another culture or another community to build a better, more collaborative community for yourselves to live in. And that's the work of democracy. 
Last thing I want to say about democracy is that democracy, contrary to public opinion, is not an individual phenomenon. It's not a matter of consumer choice. It's not a matter of individual action. It's a matter of institutional action. And to the extent that we imagine that democracy is something that we will achieve through technology-enabled conversation, we're missing the boat. You know, you achieve democracy by collaborating and building institutions that can live beyond you and that can speak to people who aren't like you. And if you tear down institutions, you end up with things that look like January 16th, people posing in Buffalo hats in, in the Capitol. And that's like a social media performance, only it was happening live with weapons. And that's the kind of thing that I think we need to push back on. I think we need to build and sustain democratic institutions rather than simply technology-enabled conversations. That's, that's my rant on that topic, but Mary Beth. Well, I just think ever since Milton Friedman and Ronald Reagan, shareholder profit is the only thing anybody cares about. It's simple. If you look at the business roundtable from a couple of years ago, they're starting to say, oh, maybe, maybe shareholder profit shouldn't be our greatest motivator. Maybe it should be community health. Maybe it should be worker health. Maybe it should be healthcare. Maybe it should be quality of life. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer. Fred told me to quit saying neoliberalism. <laughs> Fred said I say neoliberalism too much. But it's a sleight of hand. It's a trick. There's so much money going off at the top. It couldn't be clearer. More money needs to come down to the bottom. And to say that it's the corporation's job to maximize profit for the shareholder is just a rule some guys made up. It's not law. I mean, the economy is not given from on high. The economy is just something that we made up and we can change it. It needs to be changed at the policy level. I don't know. I'm not a an economist, but at the policy level, it needs to be changed. If we talk about worker health, and then there's that right-wing sleight of hand that says, well, oh, now you want socialism. Well, no, we just want people to have healthy lives. It's worth remembering that we've had this discussion before in America. We had it in the late 1930s, and it's one of the things that led to the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt. You know, one of our inspirations was the Farm Security Administration photography of the 1930s that revealed the lives of the farmers who were living inside the great mythology of a sort of the American West, but were in fact living in the Dust Bowl. So I hope that helps. There's a question about difference and how we figure that out. I don't know. I think that focusing on difference alone... What's the question? So, oh, I'm sorry. It's how do we stop talking more about what differentiates us, as Michael Meehan, um, and pay more attention to what we have in common in an environment like Silicon Valley? It's a great question. I actually think that one of the challenges is finding a balance. If we focus only on difference, we become divided very rapidly. If we focus only on commonality, we lose track of the differences that are real and the histories behind them. The challenge is to balance those things, I think. And, and the only way that I know that you balance those things is you negotiate, you argue, you fight, and you begin all of those conversations simply by acknowledging that the other person is there, literally seeing the other person. And, and that's the work that we're trying to do. Well, you have both done such an amazing job with this book. I think we have time for maybe one more question, if you'd like to take it. Peter, why don't you pick? Sure. Well, yeah, actually, what I, I would like to ask that question is, where do you both go from here after this kind of a project? I mean, what has that left you with? And has it inspired you in some way in terms of like future projects and where you're going to be going? The thing that really, you asked earlier, Peter, about Noonan, Georgia and Brockton, Mass. And I think what really unites these projects and what really motivates me is the way the country is kind of pushed around by these dominant narratives that are, I mean, that's kind of a catchphrase, but these narratives that are really just inaccurate. 
about who people are and they allow for distortions and perversions of who people are and they allow for people in power to set a story that other people can't speak through. And so I just feel really motivated by that, that to see communities in kind of a deep, to do it slowly and patiently and try to see what's complex and subtle about communities turns out to be a valuable thing. I mean, I think that's what happened in Noonan and that's what happened in Brockton and that's what's happened here. You know, I mean, like I say to my husband, it's not that hard. I just went and talked to people. You know what I mean? (laughs) I just got a burrito and talked to that lady. I mean, really on some level, it's, it's just that. I mean, the fact that this portfolio and this book is having such a, is having an impact is kind of funny because all you got to do is just go talk to everybody. They're all right there. You know what I mean? So in a way, there's something that's happening about the way we're living that's allowing for this proliferation of ignorance about the people right next to us. And a lot of that has to do with our own racism and our own preconceptions, but it's more than that. It's these stories. So I just feel motivated by that. I'm sitting in my office at Stanford University, 100 yards away from where the Google algorithms were first written as part of a computer science class, and about one mile away from the edge of campus where the trailers are lined up, getting ready to settle in for the evening. Um, People's broken down cars where they're going to be sleeping tonight. And I see my job as to be teaching and working with the people who are going to be building the technical systems in the years to come, and to be trying to find a, a way through schooling and teaching to help them see the world that Mary Beth has brought to life in these pictures and that we've tried to name in this book and to see that that's their world. And as they do unto their users, so shall they be done unto. And you know, I'd, I'd like to sort of help folks in, especially computer science, but in all technical, jo- technical fields, you know, as we build the cities of the future in digital space, what kinds of cities are we gonna build? That's the question, and, and I'm just trying really hard to teach and write toward that from right in the middle of the place where these new technologies are being designed and built. Well, we look forward to all your projects and hope to have you in our orbit again sooner than later. Mary Beth Meehan, Fred Turner, thank you both. It's been such an honor and congratulations. I mean, this book is an incredible achievement. Everybody, again, I will remind you, please do pick up a copy of the book. Every sale really does help support City Lights during the pandemic. We're not out of the woods just yet. So if you love programming like this, buy a book. Also want to remind you, City Lights is now open for business. Uh, You may once again browse our stacks. We are open seven days a week from 12 noon until 8 p.m. Please do wear official covering while visiting. We're, uh, as I said, really not out of the woods as far as COVID goes. So got to be careful. We've been following San Francisco Health Department guidelines. So hope to keep everything as safe as possible. So Also, as many of you know, we're a publishing house as well as a bookstore. We continue to publish books in the grand tradition of our late founder, the Lawrence Ferlinghetti, in his kind of legendary pocket poet series. We continue to publish poetry, literature, and translation, books on current events, always following a progressive political outlook. Uh, We have new books out from Todd Miller, Seshu Foster, Caribbean Fragosa, and many, many others. So please check out our website to learn more about the books that we publish and the books that we carry. I just want to say what a huge honor it was for us to launch the book with City Lights and you, Peter. I mean, how cool. And the only thing that could have been better is if we were all in person right now and going about to go for a drink. But still, really, really, thank you so much, Peter. Well, the rain check for the drink holds. Okay. Better times. You all heard it. Yeah, (laughs) I look forward to that. So everyone, please stay safe, stay well, and we look forward to seeing you again very, very soon. 
Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.